this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So when's the last time you read a book on selling your company? My guess is you've never read a book on selling your company. Why bother when the only books out there read like textbooks filled with acronyms and terms you've never heard of written by people who make it their job to make themselves look and sound smarter than you? Why bother? Well, the art of selling your business tries to do exactly the opposite. It features the stories of the founders I've listened to for the podcast. I've taken their best practices, their secret hacks, and bundled them into a storytelling format so that you can take away the key lessons, the action plan, the the field guide without sifting through the boring textbook that is most books on the topic of selling your company. You can get it at builttosell.com slash selling. Okay, cool little story I think you're gonna like coming up from a guy named Jason Flick, who built a company over four rounds of investments up to more than $20 million of annual revenue, at which time he sold it for more than $100 million. He talks a lot about the pros and cons of different types of investors, private equity groups, venture capitalists, even friends and family, as he built his company, UITV. It's a cool technology that if you've ever watched a football game or a baseball game on a device other than a television, you can thank my next guest, Jason Flick, for that. He built the connective tissue that made content run across devices. And he talks a lot about how it feels to have an investor, in his case, Warner Media customer. Here to tell you his entire story is Jason Flick. Jason Flick, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you, John. Looking forward to it. Tell me a little bit about UITV. And and you got to dumb it down for me because I am not a technology guy. So I read the press stuff and I'm like, I'm still confused. So disabuse me of that. Explain to me what UITV does. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll give you the, two, the, the, the one minute origin story, which probably maybe helps a bit. So we, 10 year old business, the iPhone launched, you know, 10 ish years ago. Uh, my co-founder and I, Stuart, saw the iPhone. We immediately knew this was a game changer for how people are going to relate to technology, right? My wife loved it. My two-year-old daughter loved it. None of them wanted anything to do with Blackberries and Nokias of the day. And so we said, okay, and, and Apple's never going to license this, which everybody knew and they wouldn't. We, we decided, let's create some software that can create this level of experience on what we now call or, uh, every piece of glass. And so we really helped. We wanted to help all these pieces of glass devices, if you wish, to have that kind of an experience and even got a bit of trouble by literally copying iPhone in the early days. Um, and, and Apple said you can't do it. But to make the point, we, we really just technically copied it so we could do it. And that's what we do right up to the end. We're helping with these incredible experiences, everyone. So when you say helping people on any piece of glass, when I think of pieces of glass, I think of the, all of the Apple products. So the iPhone, the, the iPad, and blah, blah, the, the Apple Watch, et cetera. So I'm assuming you're not referring to those devices because Apple creates its own software, I'd imagine. You're talking about everything else, uh, right. Android devices. Yeah, so we started off helping everybody else, but it, you know, about midway through the business, we said, okay, um, where is the biggest problem to solve? So we had this piece of technology that solved it for Sony and Canon and Kobo uh, and Canada, which was going after uh, on the ebook space. We're doing a bunch of stuff there. But we said, really, the bigger problem seems to be um, apps everywhere. And of course, we, we are, we're inundated with apps. Every product now, if it's got a, a, any electronics in it, it usually ships with an app. And so we wanted to solve that app problem. And apps are now on iOS and Android, but your apps are on your TV, your apps in your car, your apps are on your thermostat. And so, so we if, I look at, <clears throat> if I go down on my TV and flip it on, I get like, hey, you can watch like cable TV or you can watch Netflix or Prime or the weather. So that interface that I'm looking at, someone has created that interface. I'm assuming it's some technology guy at Samsung who has created that. Are you saying that that would be an example of the kind of interface you would create? 
Yeah. So if you wanted to, if you were in, we focus mostly on the biggest companies in the world. So if you wanted to build an app and you wanted to be on TVs and on set-top boxes and on iOS and Android, you would have to go and download all these tools to build it for each one of these platforms. And um, we took a very different approach. So you build one beautiful experience and it could run on smart TVs, cars, iOS, Android. And uh, so these big brands could have really beautiful apps and not have to maintain all those separate code bases. So they license your software and then develop it based on that platform. Yeah. I see. Okay. Gosh, it sounds like a really expensive business to start. What, like, what's the, yeah. what did, what, did you and Stuart kick in a ton of cash to get this thing started or mm -hmm. how did it? Yeah, we were lucky. We had, Stuart had some IP, but you, you know, the, the comparable, like how do we get on all these platforms and not care about the platforms is we had to build it. So the level of effort in the end where we were, which is almost a million lines of code, it was equivalent to a, a tier one video game engine or a tier one operating system. Both, of course, you could list on your hand how many companies have built those. So yeah, it was stupidity um, and foolishness that we could do it. Um, and, and, but in the end, yeah, we did. We were on dozens of platforms and we just didn't care about the platform. So, we so had how did you finance creating a million lines of code? Like what was this capital structure? Yeah. Um, so it was through stages. We started off bootstrapping like um, a lot of companies uh, here in Canada do doing services around some core IP. And then we got a bunch of government support to kind of build it because they could see what we were doing. And then we did finally raise a first round of capital, which was private equity, which uh, we'll talk more about that as we get into the final stages. That was a big impact. Then we raised our next round from a strategic, one of our investors, um, which ultimately acquired us. Then our next round was actually our first VC venture capital round. Um, and another strategic came in on that one. So we did do all these levels of funding um, to continue to, to grow that because yeah, we, we were not at all profitable. There was no uh, short-term goal to be a profitable business. What was the business model? Like how did you make money? Yeah, so we, we based it off of the, the return on investment of not having to have what I would say 10 people for 10 months for 10 platforms, because generally all these people wanted to get on 10 of these platforms with these devices, and it takes you 10 months and 10 people. So you have 100 people to try and build these apps and maintain it. We One team of 10 now could build for all those platforms to give a better result. So we did a, a yearly fee on a per platform. So typical deals for us were in the million or millions of dollars because they were picking a bunch of platforms um, with a bunch of brands and then using our tech to get on all of them. So you would, you would go to a company like Samsung and say, give us a million or two a year and you'll have yeah, access so that's to our platform. We, that's where we started helping those hardware manufacturers. But where we moved midway was saying, you know, that we're going to get capped. And, th and there's a whole piece on that, looking at kind of our competitors and how they, they got capped. We actually ended up going right to the final customers, to the Twitch of the world, the NFL, the NBA, um, the Cartoon Networks, and getting them to license our tech. And then we had no cap, right? You want to get on, on 25 platforms with 25 brands, that's 25 times 25 times our, um, you know, 75K, 100K a year license fee. You lost me. So when you say a cap, you're, you're referring to a cap that they would pay you, like a brand like Samsung would pay you, like they're, they're not going to pay you. They would pay us once. So they would license our engine and then Samsung's covered. So you, you're, you're capped by the fact that there are only so many device makers, right? Got it. So instead, you went to the end producer, if you will, the NFL, the NBA, yeah. and and then charged them per platform, like so Android and iPhone, and and they would pay you Samsung. per platform. Yeah, wow. exactly. And so that 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 way on the Samsung platform, we could get you know ten to hundred licenses if there's ten to hundred apps on that platform. Whereas if we kept working with the device manufacturers. They'd say, hey, we'll pay your license fee once, and they might have paid a bit more, but uh, it would put a pretty quick cap on your business model. And so, like someone like the NFL or the NBA, what would they pay per platform? You mentioned 75 grand. That would be per year, I'm assuming? Yeah. Or? yeah. Got it. So, you're, it's like a SaaS model, in effect. It's recurring. It is. Got it is like a SaaS model. That was always an interesting challenge. It is like a SaaS model, but it isn't quite because there's really no... Uh, early days, anyways, there was no cloud component to it, but it was sold as a SaaS model, which really did pay out well for us, right? To get the the 10x on that, those kind of revenues versus the one 1.5, as you know well, in the service type uh, metrics that they're just uh, traditional. Got it. And was that part of your intent in characterizing the revenue as SaaS-like because you knew it would impact your valuation? 
Absolutely. Yeah. We, we, we had, uh, that was a big push. All the investors wanted to see that nobody, you know, type of investing we were looking for anyways, which is this higher rate of return. They all want to see recurring revenue locked in. Um, so yeah, that was a big push. In fact, we, from year um, five to year eight, we, we went from probably 90% services to um, close to 50% recurring and really aggressive at trying to, to flip that from um, A, doing it or having to do the services work at all on it and B, making those uh, recurring. So just to be clear, uh, by the end of that effort, you had gotten your recurring up to 50, 50% of your 50% revenue? 50% of the revenue, yeah. And the other 50 was just one-off services or yeah, not services, just, but- which, you know, Having looked back, I think a lot of people package those services a lot better than we did, right? They they called them onboarding and packaged them in the recurring components. But yeah, we would have a team. We had a world-class design team, which was a bit unique considering it was rocket science tech we were doing. And we would use those to make sure that our clients were successful, right? It was really critical because we were doing something so unique. Um, as much as it's, you know, you're able to understand what we did, it's complicated. Our customers thought it was impossible, so it was very new. So we, early days, we had to eat our own dog food, which, um, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use to really make sure they were successful to validate this very, very different technical approach that we took. I want to, I want to just double click on something you said earlier, which was that you there, you've seen others. I don't know if it's fair to say mischaracterize, but certainly fudge their one-off services revenue and 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 kind of roll it into ARR or annual recurring revenue. So they they do a one-time implementation, and instead of calling it one-time services, they would somehow package that as part of their annual recurring revenue. Is that is that what I heard you say? Yeah, I mean, if you can raise enough funding um, and you lose money, you just say, hey, it's not um, it's not you know 50k of licensing and 50k of services it's 75 k licensing and you just spread that service piece out over a while. And you can certainly do it. I, I see a lot of companies do it. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with it, but um, we were very black and white about what was the actual software recurring and services. And um, a lot of other companies, you know, just, they were just from day one, all about recurring, nothing. There was no such thing as, um, as services revenue. And I think that's something And looking back, we probably could have been better at because we did have people that were just, available on call. We did do support through that, but there is definitely, we could have doubled down on that even more. And I think we got really, you don't get a lot of value out of the service piece relevant to that um, recurring. Right. So, so in your experience, it sounds like services was sort of in the one times revenue and, and the SaaS stuff, the, the recurring stuff was one, one in 10, I mean, whatever, maybe eight and eight and 1.5, whatever, but yeah, an order of magnitude uh, difference. And so we definitely should have and, and, and um, uh, probably could have pushed more there. And now, if you look at most of the banks, they have in the last four or five years, they'll now do your lines of credit based on recurring. They'll do, they'll do loans. Um, a lot of investors, that's the only number they want to hear. And um, yeah, you, you definitely want to maximize that number as much as you can. How was your churn? I'd be curious to know your revenue churn and your logo churn. I'm assuming logo churn was low. What about revenue churn? Maybe talk a little bit about that if you could. Yeah. So the, yeah, it was a big commitment when you went on our tech. It was very, very little churn unless they shut down a brand. Um, but there would be churn in revenue if um, they, they chose different platforms um, or um, again, if, if a big client shut down one of their um, brands, we would see churn there. Like mm -hmm. very few of our clients that went on our tech came off because once you get on that, um, having one team of 10 instead of 10 teams to 10, it's hard to go back. Um, yeah, it was a game changer for them. What yeah. would revenue churn have been in a, in a given, I don't know, did you measure it monthly or annually? We did everything annually, yeah. So what would a typical year of, 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 of revenue churn look like on a percentage basis? Yeah, I mean, probably five or ten percent. Um, it's yeah. pretty small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. I'd love to go back to the raising of 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 capital here because uh, I've got so many questions about that. But it does seem like a very unique staging. So f first, well, really, there are kind of four unique stages here. The first being bootstrapping and a combination of some government support and bootstrapping to kind of get the code written. And then it sounds like there was uh, a private equity round and then a strategic investment 
uh, and then finally a VC investment. So I'm getting the four stages right. Yeah, correct. Okay, got it. And and so first question relates to the private equity round. When I think of private equity, I I generally think of sort of more established, later stage, less sort of high tech startup, and more sort of more, you know. Like, quiet little niche corner. So tell me a little bit more about the private equity round. Was this, what, what was, what was going on here with this PE round? Yeah. So because you're bootstrapped and this is one of the risks is you become a profitable business. That's kind of the definition of it. Right. And uh, we were closing. So we were doing, I think we were doing maybe 2 million a year in business. Um, and we were profitable and we were like 30% uh, profitable and we had closed $10 million in business. We closed a big deal with Rogers. We closed a big deal with Chorus, another big Canadian brand that owns a whole bunch of kids' brands. We closed deals with Crackle, Sony. And uh, we were just swamped. We're like, we now need to hire 100 people. And um, But our story was just too unbelievable. Like nobody, we, you know, and maybe it's on me. They, they didn't believe we could build an app not using iOS tools and it would be better than iOS. Not Also identically works on Android, not using Android tools. And and so we couldn't. And so a private equity firm said, well, we just believe in the numbers. And, you know, they knew what they're getting into and, and we knew what we we're getting into. Um, and it did have an impact five, six years later, but it was the money that was available at the time. And, and we did go and hire a hundred people. We did do execute on all that business. Um, and then, yeah, they was a private equity firm with a tiger by the tail, right? Watch what you ask for. Um, you know, they got- why, what do you, why do you say that? Well, because our, so we did our A round with them and um, it was in two, it was in three tranches, actually. We didn't even take the third tranche, um, which I'm not a big fan of tranching, but I get why they want to do it. Um, and it kind of burnt them in a sense because we didn't take it. Um, and then our B round was six months later and they got a 2X right away. So technically they would have loved to be in and out for six months and got their 2X return, but that's not how it works in uh you know, in, in this world. So they, they, they had to go along with all the wins and they were really supportive. They were great. They, they followed on in every round. Um, but yeah, they got the two after turn in six months when our strategic came in Okay, and yeah. on paper, right on paper, they got the two X, right? Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm now fully confused. You're going to have to de- de- debunk this for me or, or de- decode some of this stuff. So uh, first of all, what is a tranche? So that you mentioned the private equity group invests in three tranches. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so they said it was a $10 million round, plus the bank gave us an extra line of credit for $2 million, so we called it a $12 million Canadian uh, round, uh, or maybe 13 Canadian, we converted it. Um, and so the first was $2.5 million to say, hey, if you get these things you said you'd do done, then actually, I think they just gave us the first $2.5. The next one is if you get these things done, we'll give the next $2.5. And then the, there was, I don't know, there was too many metrics around the next round, but it was assumed that they would give us that third tranche, that last $5 million. And and each tranche comes with them obviously owning more and more of your company. Yeah. And at a valuation set in the past, right? Um, So, so at this 2 million, 30%. So, what valuation did they put on the company when it was a $2 million business? um, I I don't remember, but it was almost every round was 20, 30% dilution, right? So, um, because that's kind of what they all want to own. But I don't mean this is going back. six years ago. So I don't remember the, I don't remember the, the details. I'm not trying to be evasive. I don't remember, but it was about a 20, 30% and the valuation was okay, but it was based on kind of what was being done, not what had been done. And we did go and execute on those deals. So I didn't really want to close the third tranche, which was the biggest piece, which would have given them, you know, six months later, a company doing twice the revenue, they would have gotten that valuation from six months prior. So, right. Uh, because if you had taken the third chunk you would have given up more of the company. Yeah, more, more, low valuation. More, yeah, more, more dilution for everyone. And, and then so um, a strategic came in, it was Turner at the time, which then got bought by Warner Media, which then got bought by AT&T. And um, they, uh, they, they did a, a B round for us, which interestingly enough really wasn't the B round, right? Because we, we gave up a, a chunk of the A, but um, they really wanted to call it a B. Everybody wants to lead around, right? That's the, but in essence, that kind of did set us off a little bit. I've always wanted to know, like this A B round, like I don't get it at all. So, like, th- is there some sort of official <laughs> governing body that says this is an A round and this is a B round? Like, is there any definition, or is it just the entrepreneur makes up the shit and they say, yeah, this is in my A round? Like, is it is it ar- like great. is it adjudicated by anyone, or is it actually just you making yeah. it up? 
No, but it does have a huge impact. It is not. It is a very loose set of terms, but it has a huge impact. So on your seed round, it's assuming you probably don't have any revenue. On your A round, you probably have some. On your B round, you're, you're in growth and you've probably figured your business model out. On C round, um, there's some scale, maybe some side vectors. And then D round is, is your last round before IPO, right? And that's your real scale one. That's kind of the rule of thumb. And because we've, we gave up half of our A round and did a B round so quickly, we were being perceived in that, yes, very nascent B round bucket. And we weren't really there. And that did kind of, uh, you know, was a, a, a ghost behind us all the time, kind of. Um, in what way? Us a bit. Because we weren't, when we were in, we were always, you know, B minus 0.5, C minus 0.5, D minus 0.5, because of that, um, the A round didn't really get finished. And in what way did that impact you? Yeah, valuations, expectations. So each round is a little bit harder to raise because they said, oh, you're going for your C. So these are kind of the things we're looking for. Well, we're not quite there at that because, you know, um, you're always kind of half a round behind in terms of the metrics that they're looking for. And when you say metrics, are you referring to revenue? Revenue is a metric, uh, consistency. Um, again, each one looks at a different, even different countries have different definitions for them. Um, so, but yeah, predominant growth, percentage of growth, uh, factors in matters. And in the earlier rounds, you can have higher growth as you get bigger, you can have a little bit lower, but still you look for top line revenue numbers. Got it. So six months after the private equity group, the, the round from the second tranche, you took the second tranche, you did a, a further f- financing with what you said was Turner, which became Warner, which turn became AT&T. Yeah. So what was the valuation Turner was putting on the company? Were they using a multiple of revenue? Do you remember what the, the valuation was there? Um, I remember it doubled because it was pretty low with a private equity firm. Because again, we were a profitable services company that had said we had product and we did, but very little of our, of our revenue was licensing. So they actually came in and priced us as a product company. Um, they also um, made made a bet on our tech. They doubled down our tech. They they gave us um, millions of dollars worth of business. They they gave us all their big brands, their sporting brands, their um, Cartoon Network, uh, TNT, TBS, all their. Oh, so brands. these guys were not only a, an an investor; they were also a customer. Yeah, which really plays out in the whole journey too. Yes, that must be weird because on one hand they're they're a customer, and you want to you know. But then the next breath, you're there. They're, they're, and, a, and they're like sitting a, on the board. Yeah. The board. That's got to be weird. Like, how do you manage that dynamic? It's I, I, my, in the end, I believe, and I believed it then too, it's equally good and bad. Um, so bad for all the obvious creepy rules, right? If things are going bad, if, if they want to push agendas, all those. And they didn't, that didn't happen too much, but can and did happen a few times. Um, all the positives, though, like really hard to get off your tech. They, you know, when you, you almost expect intros to all the different business units, if they don't choose you, it's like, hey, why aren't you? Um, so, and they can't, they never just turn your service off. They got to talk to you. They're, or, you know, taking an investor is not dissimilar to getting married, right? This is a long-term commitment. So, so that, that helped us. Um, and they also um, helped us, you know, break new ground. They would be our, our customer for a lot of the new technology and trying things out. So I would say it's a pro and con, and I can go through the list of all of them, but yes, it is tricky, and you have to ask them to leave the boardroom uh, sometimes, uh, but also a lot of synergy. They would say, hey, I'm, I know those guys over at Disney. Let me give you an intro. Thank you. And right. Disney sounds better, good. They wouldn't do it, but as an investor, they would. Can you? Get, I think it would be helpful for our listeners to, to, give, to, to hear an example of when you had to ask the Turner board members to leave the boardroom. Like, can you share a story about what was being discussed that required them to ask, you'd ask them to leave? And I'd be curious to know, like, how does that work? Do you just turn to them and say, hey, Steve and Mark or Mary and Jane, like, can you guys leave? We're going to talk behind your back. Like, how does that work? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, to me, a well-run board meeting, which is where a lot of stuff happens, there's a lot of prep work in advance for it, right? So the board meeting is a little bit of, um, um, you know, the end result of all that work. So they, we would already know, we'd have scheduled it, we'd let them know this agenda item need to walk out. Um, you know, obviously we haven't got into it yet, but the next round with the VC, we actually had Comcast and Sky, which ATT, Comcast are competitors. So we, any of those conversations, we'd ask them to step out. 
it did change eventually how I can present. I, I couldn't present all of our um, revenue and pipeline because I've got Comcast and AT&T sitting at the board now. One was an observer, one was a board member, so that helped a little bit too, but also added some complexity. But yeah, it's, it, uh, there was a few times. Um, you, I, you I said, yeah, there's probably more times I wish I could ask to leave so they didn't know. It's like, hey, look at this deal we're doing over here and we're going to cut a deal because of this and this and that. Can you please plug your ears? Like there's times <laughs> I wish I could have asked them to leave but I had no right to ask them to leave. But again, so I, in I, other words, you, you were going to reveal that you were going to lower your price or provide some sort of special concession and they're like, ah, nope, nope to self. Ask right. that next time. Yeah, they're going to see that. And, and actually... Because we had eight, at one point 18 active projects across uh, Warner Media, Warner Brothers, AT&T, uh, DirecTV, all owned by them. And it's different deals and different structures. When you go and we had, we had business with the Latin, Latin American division, you might imagine that a dollar in Latin America is different than a dollar in the US or Canada. So yeah, a lot of different pricing stuff. Um, it worked out, but yeah, there's, it, is, it is an interesting challenge. I would say both good and bad. So I wouldn't discourage people or encourage it. It's um, just be aware. It is. Uh... And with the strategic ac- uh, investment from Turner, did they negotiate for an option to buy all of the company at a predetermined price? So we had almost every customer was big enough. They all wanted to invest. They all wanted the first right of refusal. They all wanted that even notice. And we said no to all of it. We always said a hundred percent separate um, business transaction from investment. And that pissed off a few. And there was a few big investors that didn't uh, strategic that didn't invest because of it, but always kept that clean. I call that a poison pill, right? If they have a first right of refusal, no one's going to do all the hard work to get to a price to have them go and we'll pay a dollar more. So we never allowed that. And um, yeah, some customers almost said, oh, every Every deal we do with a small company, even when we were 200 people, we were small to some of these um, early deals. And they said, no. And you just had to say no and put your foot down. And, but yeah, that's. Yeah. So they would, so Tom Warner would, or uh, Turner uh, would say, look, we'll give you X million dollars for a Y percent of your business, but we want the rights to buy 100% of the business at this cap. That would be a common negotiated request from someone like a, a big strategic yeah. to which you just said no no and what the comp what we did in the end that that was the how we, we compromised and that was they got a board seat so you're going to see everything you know you're going to see us all squirming in our seats metaphorically when we have an offer so you're going to kind of smell something's up but you, you, you know you don't get act you don't get a first record refusal got it that's helpful and how long did you go with the funds from Turner, the strategic before raising a VC. And I'd be curious to know why raise the VC round uh, and how the private equity company reacted when you did that. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting one. Um, so, I mean, we always wanted to raise VC because we knew why? what we were doing, right? We're, we really were a highly disruptive technology um, that had tremendous growth potential. And we knew that's more of a VC play. Um, but I think before, let me just push you a little bit there. Like, why not just go back to, you have these companies that have more money than God. I mean, they're, you know, hundred billion dollar cap market capitalization. Why not, you know, just go back to the Turners and the Comcast as instead of going to the VC, why not just go back to this guys who invested in the second round and say, let's re up. So everybody did follow up on every follow-on round, but it's not the business they're in. They, they, you look at the Turner investment, they did it to get the board. They really bought a board seat um, uh, for five, six million bucks. Um, and that's what they, they're not really in the, hey, let me give you 20, 30 million so I can make um, a 10X on that. That's not the business they're in. Um, and they were okay with it because they saw the value in us. The, the more platforms we got on, the more reach we got on, the better for them. Um, but yeah, they would not stop the business written. We needed someone who was in the business of doing, you know, putting in a million or 10 million and getting out a hundred million or a billion. Got it. And so you went out to the VC community. What was the reaction? Um, so again, the 0.5 round always kind of being behind was a bit of a challenge, but, um, we closed again, an enormous amount of business, um, in one year. And that really helped, um, bolster our story. And we did uh, close around, uh, out of Boston. Um, Causeway Ventures, they were great. They're actually specialists in the media vertical, which was great. Um, 
So they did our C round and uh, that gave us the capital to really go international. So that capital allowed us to A, get, go from um, almost 100% of our business in North America to um, uh, 60% of it, 40% of our how, business. How much did you raise in that C round? It was a that... 20, $23 million uh, C round. Got it. Again, about a 20, 25% dilution um, for that round, which is pretty traditional. Yeah. Yeah. Was, did you and Stuart ever sort of sit back and say, hold on a minute, like, like we're giving up all this equity. Like, did we just want to maybe put the brakes on, become, and just kind of ride this out? Like, clearly you'd, you'd been successful. You'd created some incredible technology. Like, was there ever a moment where you said, let's, let's just stop at the strategic investor and, and become really pop, profitable and, and ride this out and keep the remaining tranche of equity? Like, did that conversation come up at all? Yeah, we, we certainly talk about it a lot. And, and uh, you know, each round usually comes with a, a liquidation preference, right? So that's, it's a layer on top of that layer. The problem is we have... Sorry, this, what's a liquidation preference? So um, most VCs, when you invest money, they get their money out first and then they participate, right? So participating shares. Um, so each one of those, it's, it's a 20% dilution, but then on top of that, they get their money out first, which if it's a big exit, that's irrelevant. If it's not a big exit, that can be uh, can be relevant. So for sure, we thought about it a lot. The challenge was it was a, a bit of a race, right? It wasn't a race we had a competitor because um, only in the end, in the last year, do we have a real meaningful competitor. Um, but it was about this core piece of IP that you had to get on all these platforms. And it just there was probably um, half of the money just went to moving that ahead and keeping it rolling. And so if you decided not to raise capital, you'd have to get profitable. You'd have to let go half that engineering team. And then I don't know that we kept our head above the water in terms of the platform. Like we had to be at least as good as Apple, as good as Android, as good as Samsung. If you're way less, then you start selling a sub-premium solution that just saves money. And we did not want to do that. Um, we didn't go into it, but we were a premium solution, right? We were the, the Ferrari of apps. They were all gorgeous. They were like video games. You almost, uh, most of the apps were so fun to use. You felt like you were playing a bit of a game and that's, that was our goal. We didn't have funding. We would have had to pull back and say, Hey, we're just going to be a crappy good enough. And then mm. guess what? They don't want to pay much for that. So then you really get in the spiral of, Oh, now you only pay 10 grand instead of a hundred grand. Um, wow. So it, it, I, I think we made the right decision to keep doing it. Um, but yeah, all, all these things conspire eventually, which is what we'll get to. And, and, you know, you have to make a choice about, um, to keep going or not. Yeah, I'm reminded, do you remember the Indiana Jones movie? I think it was the first one where the massive boulder comes tearing at him and he's like, you know, running away from the, like, it kind of feels like that. Like you clicked off this boulder of like raising money and it's like, hold on kids. Cause this is going. If you, if you go and raise your, your seed round or a round for sure, you now have this boulder and it's every 18 to 24 months you have to go. Some companies could pull back and do it, but we have this massive chunk of IP that um, it wasn't, it doesn't, you know, it, the core stuff is great, but it constantly needed to be maintained, right? As Apple made tweaks, we had to, to make those tweaks too. You mentioned there was an interesting reaction the private equity group had to the VCs. So if I'm getting this right, the private equity groups would not have had, the private equity group would not have had the, the liquidation preference. So here they are betting on you guys as a small upstart. And, and they see these VCs swooping in and getting these preferred shares and this liquidation preferences. And they're probably sitting there saying, hold on a second, we backed you guys from the beginning. What, like, how come we didn't get the fancy shares? Was that like a, the dynamic? Am I yeah, putting words in your mouth? I'll tell you the number of times we had lawyers go, uh, their lawyers, both the VCs and the private equity and the strategics go, I've never seen this term ever in a deal in my life. If we, if we, if I had a, a buck every time I, I heard that, um, you know, I'd have like what, like what would a deal term be that they'd be like, are you kidding me? <laughs> um, so one of them was the interest rate. Um, they wanted on top of their preference, they wanted the interest rate, but not paid it. Well, they wanted to pay it in real time, which we said no to. So then they wanted that paid and VC, you, you never charge interest on your money. That's never done. And then, um, a VC term, um, so that would be a private equity term that they want. Um, a VC term, gosh, I don't know off the top of my head, I can think of one, but yeah, they're, they're definitely, in terms of what they're expecting and how much control they want of the money, of the reporting, 
um, those sorts of things, be very different. Private equity, much more hands-on, lots more detail, um, want very little risk. And then um, on the VC and strategic side, they just want to swing for the fence. Um, There's a lot of, you know, we just trust you, run hardness, let's go and change the world. They know it comes down to the team executing, whereas private equity, I think, is always like, you know, they just want to, they want to be able to just pull back and say, you know what, that's too far, let's pull back on that, right? And so just the terms, all, all the terms that link to that, it's, uh, mm. it's, it was interesting. And I was able to find balances because we were really a, a, a middle risk deal. We, we absolutely have enough revenue and huge clients that we, they couldn't churn. Uh, but we also had enough potential that, you know, if we turn the right levers, this could be the next billion dollar um, company for everyone to own the glass. So I was able to lever, leverage the two against each other and, and get some nice middle grounds. But that, that was a, a constant effort for me. Yeah, sounds like it. So, uh, how big did you get this company before you chose to sell it outright? What what, what was the revenue, number of employees, that kind of stuff? Yeah, so I think we probably peaked around three hundred people. Um, twenty, probably twenty four, twenty five million in revenue um, was our peak. Uh, these are all you from Canada, but U.S. Those are all U.S. numbers. So it was a good size. We went through all, a lot of the major inflection points. The risk was all gone. Um, but that doesn't mean you just keep going and, 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 and do it either. There's always new, each inflection point I think brings a new risk and the more capital you raise, they have the more expectations. I, I, I feel sad when I see some of the companies out there, they raised a hundred million and they sold for a hundred million. Well, that means that, you know, you had to have made a side deal for a little bit of money for all the staff. Right. And that can happen if you, if you, and, and they don't, there's not a lot of patience in there, right. If you have a bad year that's it. That's the year you probably have to, to bail and not get anything. So it's a very tricky, uh, tricky game. Wow. Again, so 25, 24, 25 million top line, roughly half was this recurring SaaS like revenue. And then the other half was more kind of, uh, implementation services revenue. Yeah. Got it. And, and the final, well, let's get into the final sale price. Now. Uh, before, uh, we go further, let me, let me ask you about the, the trigger. So what, what caused Like, what was the trigger? You mentioned there was a competitor. What actually was the straw that broke the camel's back to say, we, you know, we're going to pull a trigger here. Yeah. So, I mean, luckily I've always built it knowing that this is uh, something that's going to happen. You always have a plan A, B, and C and C is usually sell, right? But you always, you know, plan A is grow the business as aggressively as can. That's always your best value lever. Um, but I would say a few things came together. Um, private equity tends to want, you know, Five years, kind of their their window. Um, they were on six. Um, there was this small thing, um, which again, this is public, called HBO streaming service, which you need to go from zero to billions in revenue, and um, they needed technology. They needed a, a piece that we had, and so that timing was there. Meaning, you uh, thought you could get them to bid on the company? Yeah, I mean, well, they they were clear that um, if if you know if you look at the battle that's going on in the streaming wars, right? Um, it's a technology battle now, right? Um, it used to be a content battle. Content was king is the old expression we've all heard of. That's not the case anymore, right? Content isn't king. There is tons of great content out there. Everybody has great content. So it's really a technology battle. And Netflix is by far the well, the most equipped, right? It's, on, it's already on every piece of glass. My car has Netflix on it. Um, I don't know if I have a piece of glass that doesn't have Netflix on it. So they need to get there. And so we were that missing piece. And they, they really didn't want others to have that. It's fun. It's funny because the pandemic has caused my wife and I to watch more television. I admit it. And we've just subscribed to HBO crave. I don't know what the difference is between HBO and crave, but they're That's an old deal. It crave licenses. Bell owns crave crave licenses from HBO, but eventually it will be HBO direct. But I don't know what it's like in the U S but in Canada, it is terrible. The interface is like from 1986. Yeah. It looks like the Dewey decimal system for trying to find a movie. It's, it's so terrible. Painful. And as a person who is, who is in that business. Oh my God. It must be like excruciating. So uh, and yes, we tried to win that business, but um, they, you know, they just couldn't, it's, it's I, a big slow organization that, that takes a long time. I wish you had, because it would make my life a little easier. Anyways, yeah, that's yeah. beside the point, but HBO is out there. They need, so you're figuring they are going to want to maybe make a play for your company. What next? Did you hire bankers or did you, did you go to like, what, yeah. tell me about the actual process. Yeah, we actually used an iBanker um, because we always knew maybe that was going to happen. We saw this coming. They, you know, they were telling us 
Um, so we said, well, we'll get an iBanker to help do our D round. And um, then if, if it does from this, we have an iBanker there. I, 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 I regret using iBanker for the D round. I don't think that was wise. Um, they're investing what? in who we are, what we are. Um, and again, we are always 0.5 off around. So you couldn't look at just the numbers. You need to look at the brains like Twitch is using us and look at the number of developers and platforms were installed on, right? You had to, you did need to look at the business a little bit, just looking at the revenue numbers. Even though we doubled for five, six years in a row, we hit an inflection point where it was about getting your tools to others, right? And it was about getting that community going, which is not about revenue. So they had to dig in a little bit and iBankers aren't good for that. If they, if they need to invest in your vision, your passion, iBanker, I was not good. Okay. So when you say iBanker, you're referring to an investment banker yeah. and you're, you're referring to a certain sort of status of investment banker, namely one of the large sort of bank owned groups or what, who, who did you go with? Like, what was yeah, that? Yeah, it was one of the mainstream, one of the large ones. And, and they're just, I think you're still, um, when you're raising capital, it's still a relationship. Again, it's like marriage. You're getting married with these funds and to put a middle person between you and them is, was not good. So, so I think that there was a bunch of things, but that, that didn't help the D round, which then took, uh, it got to the point where it'd been, you know, the pandemic hit, of course, all these things. It's like, you know, do we, and, and they made it clear, Hey, there's this massive deal that you could have, but you know, we, they probably, which they were pretty clear about, wanted to own it to be part of that stack. They don't want any of their competitors to have it because it was such a huge advantage. So we said, okay, D round's not doing great. Again, I think a bunch of reasons, but iBanker one, they're very interested. It's timing's right for them. So they, they being AT&T AT Yeah, Warner Media. So HBO is owned by Warner Media, which is owned by AT&T. I, okay, I didn't realize HBO. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, okay. it is so confusing. And like, if you yeah. figure out these media brands, it is tough. So, so yeah, they're all in the same family. So, um, we were so deep across that organization, and then for them to let us keep powering their competitors, right? The, in the streaming wars, they didn't want that. Uh, and so, how did it? How did, so? So okay. So the, the what you refer to as the D round. So this is uh, you've you've raised venture capital though, right? And, and so that's in the bank, you're, you're growing. So the D round would have been another round after that, you know, pre IPO for, for example. And so that's on the, in the market and it's undersubscribed, meaning you're not getting a ton of interest. People are like, ah, it's kind of half where, you know, it's not, it's not what we would. Yeah. Keep, I don't mean put words in your mouth. Okay. And at the same time, you're having meetings where like, how does, how did, did ATT Warner sort of raise the specter of potentially buying you outright? Did was that a conversation over a beer or like was it a board meeting? Like how did that actually get well, important? I mean, it had already been, it had always been an assumption, and it's both a positive and negative. Everyone who looked at us, even for investors, it's another reason the D round wasn't great. It's like, wow, you're so fundamental to these guys. You you own you're running like almost every brand I'm aware of. Uh, that and then to your point, a bunch I didn't even know they owned, and you're running all of them. So I think that was a bit of a detriment. Um, but it, why would a VC? Uh, why would why would anybody care? I mean, it does. It sounds great that that you were doing all this work with one, this. Yeah, this, this company. It, it can be great because um, uh, it's. It, but it's also a single point of fault, right? They can say, "Hey," um, and of course, they were so many different brands they wouldn't be able to. But in theory, they could say, "Hey, we're just going to turn the tap off." You, we don't like the new investor you picked, and so we're going to turn the tap off on your revenue, um, which is not realistic it's not a real scenario but they could imagine it to be one and therefore they wow okay then the company just lost you know a huge chunk of its revenue so that's the that's the risk they perceive is that that's a single point of false from one customer i perceive it as look we just did this for at&t now imagine comcast now imagine uh, verizon liberty global um all these there there was uh, hundreds of multi-billion dollar operators that we could do exactly what we did with at&t um, How much of your overall 25 million revenue was coming from some, some one of ATT Warner's sort of brands? Yeah, between services was a bit higher, but uh, the recurring part was about a third, maybe a little bit more than a third. So a bit more than a third of our revenue was them. So significant. Got it. Got it. Got it. That's helpful. And again, back to my question. So how, do, so the assumption has always been there. It's sort of like the elephant in the room. How does it go from the elephant in the room to the actual proactive conversation with ATT Warner? Yeah. So it was weird. I mean, so two years ago when they got acquired, I don't, I don't remember when, when AT&T bought uh, Turner, they had said, Hey, we've got um, powder keg of, 
of money. We're going to buy all these companies. And they, and they did go and buy a bunch of companies. And they had all told us that we were on that list. So two years ago, almost every employee knew, which they thought they knew, that they were going to buy us, which was not good. I know it's on your list of not things. We, we couldn't really stop it, though. They were like telling my my salespeople, my managers, oh, we're just going to we're going to buy you guys. This is amazing. We're going to go change the world at AT&T. And Did then, those employees so, have shares in your company? Yeah, every employee or, gets ownership. Or options? Them. Okay. Yeah, everybody gets some. So they're like, all right, yeah. <laughs> when do we start? I think, I think it's critical, especially in an IT world where you, you know, this is all about how passionate you are about what you're doing. Yeah, but they're, they're I'm assuming, now learning that you're potentially for sale and that's probably pretty distracting for them, no? It, it was. And for the leadership team, even more so, right? Because um, the day-to-day team is like, well, the bulk of the revenues back then is even more than that percentage. The bulk of the revenue is coming from who's going to buy it. So just keep doing your day job. It's all good. And it, you're not even going to notice that much of a difference. You're going to get some cash and keep working the same projects, right? So it wasn't as scary, but it was very distracting for the executive and management team. And I do think that really took us off track. And then in the end, there was some executive shuffles that happened and the executives that um, would have probably pushed for us to be bought um, didn't get their moves till a year later. So it didn't happen. So that was definitely a tough spot. Um, and we missed some revenue targets. We had to let, I think it was like 12 people go, which is a tiny number, but it's, you know, it, it hits hard. And it's like, wow, we, we were this company doubling every year for four or five years straight. We were the fastest growing company in Deloitte's list and in um, in Canada for two or three years, and then to have all of a sudden let people go, so that was a that was a really tough dark time. Um, but then we got out of that. We raised our funding and and we you know made a bunch of new milestones. And then yeah, and then when this round we were much savvier. I kept that tiny group involved, um, tried to keep it as under wrap as we could, and because um, and to your point, it's just not healthy for anybody to know. So that, that was a. Okay, so I just want to make sure I'm clear. So, so the the employees found out when when did the employees find out that, that when was that the 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 Turner slash Warner AT and T folks when were they talking to your employees saying, "Oh, we're just going to buy you"? Was that in advance of the VC round or 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 at the stage of the D round? Oh, yeah, this was um, this was probably midway uh, to the to the C round. They were saying that um, they were going to do that because. And because it was so many different brands and they all communicate with each other, like, oh, this is so it was hard to stop that. And um, yeah, so I couldn't really control it. I'd have to say, hey, guys, we don't know. Um, you got to just keep focusing on stuff. But it, And what it, triggered it, you to have to lay people off? I wasn't clear on that piece. So because we were so distracted with them buying us, we focused on them way too much and their revenue didn't grow, right? The extra focus on them didn't increase their revenue. In fact, it decreased revenue elsewhere. So then, and we, um, we wanted to make sure we had the runway. So when you go out and seek funding, you want at least six to 12 months to raise the capital. And this had thrown our funding cycle off a bit. So you have to which sucks, right? You've still got millions in the bank, but you've got a, these 11 or 12 people um, make it so that you've only got, you know, three or four months of runway instead of six or eight. And um, so that wasn't, wasn't great. Um, and then there's the service piece too. Yeah. You have to always choose the service piece. I think some of the services had gone down. So yeah, you lose. And I've heard some of your other speakers talk about it, right? When you start getting that investment, it really messes your business up and softens, I think was one of the customers. And so, yeah, we had a softening or a business and, um, you have to make things um, make sense financially, right? You still have to run a, at a certain monthly burn. Got it. So again, maybe I, I'm my memory is, is failing me, but did we cover like how the conversation went from the elephant in the room to actually a term sheet? No, it was it was pretty it was pretty slow. Um, I mean, they had told us way before, hey, this project is so massively important to us. We'll never give you the deal unless we buy you. So that was awkward. And then we slowly started seeing we were going to win that deal. So again, that was still fairly obvious. And this is the HBO deal. This is the massive HBO deal, right? And then, um, you know, six months in, it was pretty clear we won it and they still had not close the deal. And people are going, what? I was pretty sure we won this. It's pretty obvious or you know, like we're, we're deep into their business. We're pretty sure we've won this. Why haven't they done the deal? And I think a lot of people, it was, there was definitely a couple of months of awkwardness there where it was, it was, you know, certainly a month of awkward worse for us. And then they started talking to me about it and the team. And um, we actually even brought in an ex, um, uh, we had a board seat open. So we brought in one of our uh, ex customers from them, which helped to kind of, you know, communicate and get that rolling. 
probably maybe even made it too easy by bringing one of their ex-employees as a board member. But yeah, it slowly started uh, happening. And then, you know, they said, yeah, we're going to send you a term sheet. But of course, when you talk to AT&T size companies, everything they say is always plus a week or plus a couple of weeks. So it took much longer than than we thought. And what was, okay, so you're, you're working on this HBO proposal. It, it's clear you've won it based on how integrated the conversations you're having at the, you know, it seemed clear yet. Like they haven't, do they have a price in front of them? Like, are they saying we, you know, you'd like, it's going to be 75 grand a year times all your platforms. Yeah, well, so there was an interesting little game that I, I, I played as well. So the, the market really for us, because we were going after the giants and in the last two years, the giants went from being, a whole bunch of brands that were kind of upstarts like Crunchyroll and these, these hip new brands all of a sudden became about Peacock, Disney, HBO Max, uh, Netflix, obviously, and Amazon. So these five giants. So I'd actually retuned the business and pulled away from going down market, which wasn't working out as well, well as we wanted um, for a lot of reasons. I said, all right, let's go wide. And so instead of getting on 12 devices, which is kind of the Samsung TVs and the iOS and Android, I said, let's get on hundreds, let's get on cars, let's get on set-top boxes. And so what we put before them a very, which was based on current pricing, a millions and millions and millions of dollars of deal in front of them and all their competitors saying, hey, if you want to get on every set-top box and every car, you can't all go do it yourself. There's not enough memory in the set-top boxes, not enough memory in all these devices. Pick us, be part of this founders group, pre-license this stuff, and I'll skip my D round and everybody wins. And that really scared them. That really scared them. And, uh, th- and because think, um, effectively the, that that veiled threat would enable would would have given their direct competitors. This yeah, we were going to say let's let's make sauce. getting on every piece of glass a commodity, right? Which a whole bunch of them wanted, but whoever could get us instead of that would be at a huge advantage, right? There's no there's no technical competitor um, to Netflix. Even the Disney guys, they're 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 just doing it with thousands of developers. Um, so that, that threat got them off the hop. If it you did, will. Yeah. So I had to help a little bit too. So that got them like, wow. Okay. So now your licensing didn't go from, uh, uh, you know, 10 million or whatever to a hundred million a year. Okay. Well in the next five years, okay, well, man, that doesn't make sense. We should, you know, we should probably buy you. So I think that also encouraged them. So, and that was us playing to kind of get them off because either you, either we do the DRAN or you buy us one or the other has to happen. You got to pick one at some point and put two or three months into due diligence to get it done. And it was pretty obvious that was the better way to go. And investors saw that, we saw it. And so that was one of the things we did that, um, yeah, I said, holy crap, okay. Now I can do a QR ROI even for, for buying. Yeah, instead of $500 million of licensing fees, I can pay X and own the yeah. company. So what was their term sheet? What, what was your reaction to the term sheet? Yeah, so we went back and forth and, you know, the old, I was always advised, don't, you know, don't share the number first, right? Like don't, whoever speaks first loses, right? On the pricing side, this old sales analogy, right? Um, I, I don't think that was the best advice. I think, you know, we, we believed we, we had a huge opportunity. We knew how many, uh, how the obscene amount of money we would save them and uh, our board didn't want to speak first. Um, so then that, then they spoke first. Well, that's, you know, they, they always know, everyone knows they pay a lot and they, they are who they, they always do cash deals, right? So that wasn't it. So there's a whole bunch of these things to do. So of course they do what they always did, which is they lowball, and then you got to fight your way up. And I would have rather, I would go back in time and say, yeah, let's just give them the frigging number, like go against common sense, say this number and, uh, and, uh, and then go down. But of course, what if they, what if the number we came in was twice what we were going to give them, but it, we knew it wasn't going to be. Um, so yeah, so they gave us a number and then we had to go say, come on, really? And then, you go back and forth and you do a bunch of uh, dancing. And, and what was the number they came up with? What, what the number, the, the original offer? Yeah, it was about 20% less than we got. Um, it was, it was, it was, it, it was, and I, it was a deal we knew, they knew they would, we wouldn't take. And, and to you, I think you've seen that on your other part, uh, some other people have said, you know, uh, do you tell them what you want, what your lowest number is? And again, having a private equity that was happy to have probably exited four years ago um, and and going like, wow, exciting, having our VC go, mm, okay, this is cool. We've only been in for a little while, so I guess it's still a good exit. Um, and then me, who, who knows, we knew how much money, like the savings were crazy that they were going to make with our tech. 
And so, yeah, just going through all that and, and we had to have a whole bunch of extra meetings and it's as much political as it is reality too, right? And, and uh, can you get other, as you've said before too, on can you get other bidders to the table? Well, really hard to do when you have someone there who knows there isn't really a reasonable price limit to your point. They, 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 I don't know, I think they had done um, about a month or two before the deal, they had done a $4 billion cash buyback just for fun, right? Like I know, like oh, we got some debt and they just spent four billion. And we knew that the C FO of AT&T and the CEO were involved. They had approved. So we're like, these guys who really don't get into meetings that aren't, you know, in the billions of dollars numbers, why are we getting? So, yeah, so it was a lot of back and forth. And, um, you know, in the end, I think good. But yeah, there was, as always, right, there's, there's more to be had. And I think everybody was probably a little bit unhappy. And again, they weren't picking us up, which is now public knowledge. They weren't buying us to, to, to take us to be the billion dollar company we knew we could be. They were buying us to just lock us down and make us their own differentiator, which is a very different uh, metric, right, to measure. But they had to also look at revenue metrics and recurring revenue metrics. So, uh, again, I think we had really good support. I had good lawyers. They, they all did good stuff. But, again, I don't know that the iBanker added a lot of value in there, right? Um, the, you know, my takeaway, you know, I, I always thought iBank was there to maximize your value. And I always thought that for housing, too. But, I mean, in the end, it really felt like it was just get the deal done, right? Which I've used um, people selling a house to. Generally speaking, they'd rather sell 10 houses at 20% less then sell one house at 20% more, right? Like we're not stupid, right? So I really felt like it's like, yeah, let's just do this deal, who cares? And so, uh, yeah, I was kind of on my own to fight to get, it, um, you know, to get back to a reasonable number. Right, because the private equity group, I'm assuming were thrilled with the outcome and, and you know, they, they wanted out. So they were like, okay, Jason, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> Anything, that, yeah, even, whatever yeah. they offered us, take even less than that, we don't, yeah. They, they yeah. Yeah, interesting dynamic, and and of course the other investor, Turner slash Warner slash ATT, or you know, yeah, yeah it's their, they're owners, right? So yeah, yeah. So they owners. that was a yeah. big part for them. And then you've got the VCs who were in early and and weren't going to get the big, uh, what do you call it, unicorn kind of style yeah, exit. Kind of, so, so they're, the, yeah, the, and and yeah. You, you, so you got to look at all those dynamics, market timing, and, mm -hmm. and COVID added a lot of risk to every business, right? And, and to your point, you're watching a lot more streaming, so it's definitely increased it. But also with Peacock and HBO Max, like all those burgeoning services, you know, Red Bull has a service, A&E has a service, all these burgeoning services that we're trying to get ahead for the next couple of years are going to be in trouble because Disney, Peacock, HBO, um, Amazon are putting billions into this. They're going to have to let that all settle down become kind of just the regular flow and then get above. And so I think the risk profile was increasing. Now we weren't- When you really say Peacock, good. are you referring to NBC? Yeah, the NBC okay. Peacocks. Yeah, Peacock Streaming Solution. Yeah, the NBC Comcast, which, and they own Sky too, which not a lot of people know. So yeah, it's a big- Interesting. Issue. And so what was the final sale price? What was, the, what was reported? Yeah, I think it was said to be over 100 million, but it was definitely within that, uh, that range. Yeah, a lot of stuff leaked because of the way the deal was structured. Um, AT&T went the very, a very formal process, which required courts and, and uh, disclosure. There were some really awkward times where the staff were fully aware of what's going on. And as you said before, wait for the cash in the bank. The, the cash was still weeks and weeks away from being in the bank, but we had to involve staff because they wanted to lock key people in. They wanted to get shareholder approval. Well, I've given shares and equity to every single employee. So pretty quickly, when you say I want to make shareholders aware of this, that's every one of my employees. So there's lots of weird, um, there were some real awkward moments in there, but the team was awesome. They, 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 they stuck by it. They got it done. And we all knew they were going to get taken care of well, right? Um, I don't want to speak badly of private equity deals, but when you get bought by a private equity, step one, efficiency, 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 right? And they just really wanted to be, they wanted us to be exactly who we are, just doing it for them. And so I think um, A was online with the vision, right? We want to get on every piece of glass. You know, um, I think HBO has been pretty clear. They want to get everyone every piece of glass. They have to, even if they're not saying it. And so now our engine, you won't be able to turn on a device probably in the next two years and our stuff won't be on it. So that was, a, that was one of our immaterial, or less tangible, but kind of more, um, uh, or less, not financial, but more um, visionary goals. And we're going to achieve that now for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What a neat legacy to know that 
everybody's <laughs> there's there's millions and tens of millions of devices out there that that are running the stuff that you created back that was so many years ago was like how do we get on every how do we be on everything how do we get pre-embedded and we were definitely getting there so it was exciting hundreds of millions of our engines um i imagine most devices in your house if they can play video they've got our engine on so that's pretty cool yeah interesting it sounds like an amazing, I mean, it is an amazing story with so many lessons inherent within it. If you could do one thing differently, knowing everything that you know now, what might you have done differently at a tactical level that, that might've been? Yeah. I mean, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Yeah. So, I mean, luckily I had a lot of peer mentorship and sitting down a lot of time with CEO. So a lot of the basic stuff I, I didn't get wrong i think we you know we did the planning the process and and culture and all those really critical things i think we did a really good job on those if i look at just the end result i would have loved our vision was always um you know that it was more of a microsoft google adobe amazon type exit if we went to the full because they those are the ones that really need to get on every piece of glass and can monetize that right so and i was really i was never able to because they weren't our customers we would never sell a, an engine a license to them we could never get engaged with them. So we never got on the radar. And I, I did try in the last year or two to get that. I don't know if it's plausible, but I wish that they were more aware of us and somehow going on the journey. Maybe they need to be one of our strategic investors. I don't know. But hmm. um, to me, the, the home run that I know we could have been would have required a Microsoft, Amazon, Adobe to be there and go, holy crap. Like, I mean, you know, we all know Flash, right? Flash failed. We were, we are what Flash wishes it could have been had it been, you know, um, been thought of 10 years later and so all those those guys just run the table and I, I didn't know how to get them there um and they didn't come on their own um because they're just so huge so I, I would go back i wish i could that's one thing i could have fixed so that they would be there we try to do some strategic projects with them but man they're just so huge right um so it's hard to find the there was that old Harvey McKay book this goes back 30 years where he's like who buys the the balloons is that was that the expression meaning like in these giant companies there's somebody who actually has a job of doing the, the kind of, but it's just finding that person within the company well and that person so but yes but then that person isn't so if you look at amazon or microsoft or google they have so many business units that person is so busy you have to be in the tens of billions to even be relevant to them right. and we weren't there we we could be you know we um you know we could be the shopify of glass right but yeah, that person is so inundated and they're not broken down by group. They're almost all centralized. And so, yeah, it's a tricky one. Um, so yeah, that might be the one I think, you know, we, yeah. I'm pretty proud of the, the culture we built and um, the accomplishments we did and, and how we did it technically. But yeah, I wish we could have gotten one of those there because it's, you know, in four or five years, you know, look back, you're going to see what we're doing. That's going to be commonplace. There's only one competitor right now is Google. They're only, it's only been out for a year or so, but what we were doing 10 years ago will be commonplace in the next two years. And then you go, shit, what if you hadn't? Now I, 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 there was no, there was no realistic path to not unless it was, you know, um, some sort of brimstone approach. Um, but yeah. How did you and Stuart commemorate the sale? This is the thing. It was such a gradual thing, right? And there's so many milestones. Like you said, cash in the bank. Even that, we ended up picking some firm that that is a middleman between the middlemen because there's a holdback. And I mean, cash in the bank was was weeks after done, 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 done. Like, so there was so many phases. So we we celebrated a bunch of times, um, kind of informally, but there was never that. Now it's done. And I was kind of thinking money in the bank, but that just dragged on forever. Um, uh, right into the new year and stuff. So um, I think it, we haven't yet done it. And COVID, I think, is our excuse. So we will be doing a lot of celebrating later. And um, uh, yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. There's, I, I would have loved to have been just a ta-da, we sold. But because of the way the deal went and because there's such a large client, it was six months of ta-da. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you can bring the dawn for six months, but that's kind of how it was from my, my perspective. Anyways. How has it been for you personally? Uh, just psychologically, I've heard from a lot of entrepreneurs, they go through the, the just amazing high of, of the sale and, and then there's a drop off just emotionally where 
you know, the money's in the bank, that's great, but there's also sort of a lack of purpose. Did you go through any of those emotional sort of yeah, down times? I, I, yeah, I think I, I am. I mean, l- luckily I've, again, had a lot of CEOs I've seen sell. So I knew what I was getting into. I, I, this is why my 10th startup in some capacity of leadership. So I've seen a bunch of people go through it. I've known money isn't, you know, just generally speaking, living in Canada, money for most of us isn't, you, know, you can probably do what you want. So I knew a lot of that, but yeah, I've got to find my new purpose, my new passion. Um, I'm trying to just say no to everything except for just reaching out, sharing, talking to people. But I've had CEO offers. I've had investments. To, I've had, I'm just saying, kind of, no, I want to just let it settle in. I, I never let myself believe the deal was done, even when it was so obvious. Because if you don't have the, I'm going to keep running this, then, you know, oh, we want to offer you half. You got to keep saying yes, right? So I never really, right up to the end, I said, no, if I have to run this, I will. I want to. I'm okay with it. And then when it finally happened, I'm like, okay, I guess I can stop saying I'll keep running because now I can't anymore. And so I think it's all still settling in. It's going to be, it's the new, it's the new journey for me. I'll uh, catch up on some more of your uh, other uh, (laughs) guests who maybe were not just as freshly exited as me and learn a bit from there. But certainly I'm going to keep doing it. I mean, this is in your blood. I love building businesses. I love uh, um, all the stuff that's involved in it, the chase of the big deal. I, I just love it. So I'll get back into it. But, um, well, I can't wait to be a fly on the wall to see what, uh, what, what comes next. Jason, where can people reach out? I, I don't know if you're accepting, uh, you know, LinkedIn requests or I don't know if you're a Twitter guy, what's the best way? Yeah. Yeah. LinkedIn's the easiest way. Um, you know, drop me a note, let me know what particular you want to talk to me or no or whatever. And I'm, I'm happy to chat. I, I almost never say no. Um, I, I'm always happy to chat and help folks out. I awesome. was certainly for years, um, you know, it was actually 18 years because of my other company that I founded that let me found this one. So I, whenever I got an hour of somebody's time who's been there done that, it was so helpful for me. So I certainly am doing a lot of give back now. Um, so yeah, if that's what he wants to help, I'm happy to have him reach out on LinkedIn. Well, that's very generous. And, and you certainly given back to our audience. So I really appreciate doing that. Jason, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, John. Great chatting. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.